Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. I don't want any of this lover's lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. Whether it was in print, on television, or via Twitter, Roger Ebert was full of sound opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Cott from the Chicago Tribune. Today, we remember Roger Ebert and play one of his last ever recorded interviews. And later, we review the latest from the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. That is Bob Ritchie, a.k.a. Kid Rock of Detroit, Michigan, Jim, and he's touring this summer, my friend, for you and the people. He's going to save us a lot of money. That's what he's saying anyway. He's a man of the people. $20 ticket price. How about that? Here's a guy who can command probably three, four times that on the market, but he says he's going to do an entire summer tour by selling $20 concert tickets for most of the seats in the house. He's also saying he's going to charge 4 bucks for 12-ounce beers, offer value food packages, cheaper parking, $20 merchandise, you know, usually about half of what a T-shirt normally costs at a concert. He says he's doing this in partnership with Live Nation, the promoter, saying all the right things. Every little thing, they nickel and dime you, and it's not just music, it's sports, it's going to the movies. Artists demand so much money, and you have to set ticket prices at a certain level. Everyone's fighting the system, and it's really been all our fault. 
And now he's putting his uh, money where his mouth is, basically offering these discounted tickets. There's some cool opening acts, too. ZZ Top on the road with him and Cool and the Gang. And I think the concept here, Jim, is that if you fill the house, you're going to make that money back. Whereas if you're selling these top tickets, you may not sell as many of them. But he feels, you know, I'd rather play in front of a full house, get everybody there, and then make my money that way. But buried in the fine print here, though, is an interesting business experiment. He's in partnership here with Live Nation, which has merged with Ticketmaster. For quite some time, they have been talking about market-driven ticket pricing. What is that? It's like on eBay, okay? If somebody says that this piece of folk art is worth $5 and that's all that anybody's willing to pay, it sells for $5. If other people say it's worth 500 5000 50000 well, whatever the market says it's worth, that's what we'll sell it for. Live Nation Ticketmaster would like to sell concert tickets in that way. So, the first two rows of all of Bob Ritchie's outdoor arena shows this summer, they're not going to be sold. And that the $20 ticket buyer, when he or she shows up, the Names are going to be picked out of a hat, and if they're lucky, they're going to win a seat in rows one or two. How cool is that, right? Rows three to 20, however, are going to be sold through something called Platinum Tickets via Ticketmaster. These are going to be market-priced. Maybe they'll go for $50. Maybe they'll go for $500. Maybe they'll go for 1000 So this experiment is being conducted under the cover of this $20 bargain concert tour to see if this model will work. And believe me, if this works, we're going to see it in other mega tours that Live Nation is going to take from coast to coast. That is the music that used to usher in Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert onto the television screen to talk about movies. An iconic television show, an iconic duo, intelligent conversation about the arts, about movies in our culture. Roger Ebert died recently at the age of 70 after a long battle with cancer. His partner Siskel died in 99. Their role in the area of criticism cannot be overstated. No. Ebert, a Pulitzer Prize-winning critic, uh, began work at the paper that you worked at for a long time, Jim, uh, the Chicago Sun-Times. Ebert began there in 1967, and between him and Siskel, elevated the art of criticism into a national pastime in a lot of ways, got an entire country conversing about movies, and I think in a new way, and watching movies in a new way. Hugely inspiring to us. I mean, I know you worked at the Sun-Times with Roger. I worked at the Chicago Tribune with Siskel for a while. Siskel would give me rides home from work, and, you know, we talked about criticism. I, I will about never what a critic forget, do. I will never forget Gene attacking you and I because <laughs> we dared, we committed the cardinal sin of making fun of the Spice Girls movie after a screening, and he was like, gentlemen, you save your opinions until you're on the radio together. <laughs> the radio show, obviously, we ripped off Lock, Stock, and Barrel from Gene and Roger. We said, hey, one short guy, uh, one tall guy, one fat guy, one skinny guy, let's go on the radio and talk about music instead of movies. Took it whole hog, right? 
I did work with Roger. I still cannot believe that I can say that he was a colleague and a friend, Greg, for 20 years. When I wrote a review he liked, I got a quick email from him. When I wrote a review he disagreed with, boy, did I hear from him. One of the highlights of my life, really, was getting to introduce the silly psychedelic exploitation film he wrote in 1970 with Russ Meyer, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. He asked me, after he could no longer speak, to introduce that film and to lead a discussion about it at Ebert Fest in Champaign. I'm in Chicago. I'm a critic today because of Roger Ebert, you know, along with Lester Bangs, a bigger influence in my life personally than, than anybody else. But both of us think that it's very important to say what these guys did. They were intellectuals. You could boil down and say, well, it was thumbs up or thumbs down. It's, it's dumbing things down. Oh, no, 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 no. They talked passionately mm-hmm. about this art and about everything that was in the art, every element of life on television in a way that was entertaining and accessible. We've always said Sound Opinions is you and me talking about music, but there's a third person on the couch with us listening to this music and arguing about it, the listener at home. We got that idea from them. What's more, one of our first shows when we came to public radio, Roger agreed to be our guest. We'd been after him for years, and I think it was his blessing. Good luck, boys. Good luck on public radio. It was a fascinating chat. Happened in 2006, and sadly, uh, not long after this interview, he had the operation that left him unable to speak for the rest of his life. In tribute to Roger, we want to play this interview from 2006. You probably know Roger Ebert, the film buff. This is Roger Ebert, the rock and roller. Reading your reviews for so many years, Roger, I feel like rock and roll's in your bones. I mean, you came up in that generation and where rock and roll was like the center of youth culture, I thought, in a lot of ways. And I feel like you could have gone either way. Like, you could have written just as eloquently about rock music. If well, you, you to, shared a you know, birthday with Phil. Uh, some fellow, uh, what's his name? Paul McCartney. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, that guy in the Paul Beatles. McCartney. The same year, too. The same year and yeah. day, yeah. I know. Yeah. As long as there's still a Beatle who's performing, I'm not that old is the way I look there at it. There you go. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember standing in the front yard on Washington Street in Urbana with six or seven kids in the neighborhood, and one of these friends of mine had gone to see Blackboard Jungle. And all he could talk about, all he could talk about, he didn't even care about the movie, was Rock Around the Clock. Mm. Bill Haley in the comments yeah, was that, the first That was the film. first so-called rock movie. Now, of yeah. course, there had been a lot of black music that was rock and roll before then, but mm. Bill Haley and Rock Around the Clock was really when the genre got its name, rock, instead of rhythm and blues or race music, whatever they called it. And I went to see Bill Haley in the comments. Uh, in about 1969, here in Chicago, in a retro show, mm-hmm. he still had that little spit curl, <laughs> and they still had the bass player that was curling the, yeah, the yeah, upright yeah. bass. Yeah. He was old to begin with, so he must it have been was, really oh, old by 69. Oh, my God, you know, and it was, but at that time, it was so refreshing. It was so different than Perry Como, the McGuire sisters. I mean, you have no idea how, and then, of course, within just a matter of, it seemed like weeks, you had Elvis. Given that, Roger, I'd, li- I'd like you to you know, compare you know, your first movie experience to your first rock concert experience, and which was more transforming? Well, what was my first? First of all, I have to tell you that in college I was a folky. Mm-hmm. University of Illinois, the Campus Folk Song Club, in those days was very important. They had uh, the first campus concert ever given by Flatt & Scruggs, the wow. first campus concert ever given by the Staples Sisters. I grew up really with folk mm-hmm. and wasn't really into rock and roll. For a while, and I think that probably the first rock concert I went to might have been something by Dylan, who was by then 
the natural path from being a folky. Yeah, moving he, was, he was moving. Yeah, and that would have been in the early seventies. Mm-hmm. One of the most remarkable things, going back reading some of your early stuff, you wrote so eloquently about Woodstock, the Woodstock movie, mm-hmm. and called it the greatest rock documentary ever made. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, calling out Dylan, Don't Look Back, widely viewed in the rock community as like, you know, the great document of the great artist at the height of his fame, mm-hmm. spewing venom at everybody. And, oh, look at this guy. He was punk before there was punk rock. And uh, you looking back on this guy and, and saying, what a jerk Bob Dylan was in 1965. <laughs> yeah. You didn't like the person you saw on that movie screen. I didn't. I thought he was putting down defenseless people who were in a position where uh, they didn't have any way to respond to him mm-hmm. or any place to stand. I mean, he was a bully. And this is at the height of the rock area. You were writing some of this stuff when the movie came out in 67. Yeah. You look back on it, uh, I think, 20, 30 years later and basically concurred that you were right back then to call him out. I still um, didn't like the movie. I mean, I didn't like the Dylan I saw in the movie. Then I saw the long uh, three, four-hour documentary by Scorsese. Yeah. And changed my mind, or at least it uh, refined and developed mm. my opinion about Dylan. Right. It's a much more three-dimensional portrait that includes much more of the entire career mm-hmm. and the entire person. And when you start to think about it, at the time he made Don't Look, uh, uh, Don't look, back. Don't look back, the whole legend of Dylan, the founding legend, all took place before he was 24. He was a kid from Minnesota who went to the village, who met Ramblin' Jack Elliott, who met Joan Baez, who wrote some songs, who appeared at a club, and suddenly he was a god. I mean, 24 hours later or a year later, he was on the cover of Time magazine. And how many of us would be able to handle that? I mean, the press conferences that Scorsese shows, people are asking him, absurd questions about metaphysics and life and the yeah. meaning of things. And he just looks at them as anyone would. I mean, <laughs> I just played your songs. Yeah. yeah, Mr. Dillon, you know, we don't have the Dalai Lama here or the Pope, so we're going to ask you yeah. for the meaning of these theological questions. And he's looking at them like they're crazy. So the Scorsese movie put him in a different context. Yeah. I think anybody looking at Don't Look Back is looking at a jerk. Are you going to see the concert tonight? Are you going to hear it? Okay, you hear and see it. And uh, it's going to happen fast, and you're not going to get it all. And you might even hear the wrong words, you know. And then afterwards, see, I, can't, I won't be able to talk to you afterwards. i got nothing to say about these things I write. I mean, I just write them. I'm not going to say anything about them. I don't write them for any reason. There's no great message. I mean, if, if you know, you want to tell other people that, go ahead and tell them. But I'm not going to have to answer to it. And they're just going to think, you know, what's this Time magazine telling us? But, that, but you couldn't care less about that either. You don't know the people that read you. Did you get any flack for that viewpoint? Because yeah. it certainly wasn't shared by I'm a lot still, of your peers. You can go to the uh, Usenet today and look at the news groups, the Dylan groups. I am still, I am still today vilified, being vilified for that <laughs> review. Mm-hmm. And I suppose to some degree my review of the Scorsese documentary corrected that. Actually, you're right because I knew nothing about Dylan except what I saw in the Pinnebaker documentary. And on the basis of that, he is a jerk. You must leave now, take what you need, you think will last But whatever you wish to keep, you'd better grab it fast We've been talking about 
Dylan's documentary. And a lot of people, like Greg said, consider Don't Look Back the best documentary in rock history. What do you think of the successful ones? And what has worked and what hasn't? First of all, I think Woodstock is one of the great films of all time. Mm -hmm. Wow. Films, period. Yeah. Even with all that weird 16 broken up screens. Well, I love, you know, it was edited by Martin Scorsese and Thelma Schoonemacher, Mm -hmm. who later became his editor for every other movie he Mm -hmm. ever made. And it was uh, photographed, it was directed by a man named Mike Wadley, who only made one other film. Mm-hmm. And then spent six years trying to make a six-hour epic about George Washington that nobody wanted to produce. <laughs> and uh, But anyway, first of all, most rock documentaries before Woodstock consisted of one 16-millimeter camera in the front row shooting up the guy's nostrils. <laughs> and what they did with this film, they had many different cameramen. They put the, sh- the shoot together. Bob Maurice was the name of the producer. They put the shoot together very... You know, remember, Woodstock was organized in a very short period of time. Yeah. And so they had to put the production together even in a shorter period of time. They went up there with all of these cameras, not realizing what a phenomenon it was really going to be. They Mm -hmm. knew it was going to be a big rock concert, but it turned out to be this great event. And they had all of this footage. They had... I'd love to see the outtakes. I'd like to see the deleted mm-hmm. scenes. They have complete footage from many different cameras of every single moment on that stage that took place during that entire period of time, plus all the stuff from the audience, plus things like Portisan Man. Yeah, and, and helicopter the, shots. The helicopter and shots, and the guy who owned the farm, yeah. and um, the medics, and uh, good morning, people. We're going to have breakfast for half a million people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What we have in mind is breakfast in bed for 400,000. And the, the split screen stuff, in a way, it was back when widescreen was really widescreen. Mm-hmm. It, it allowed them to get in more stuff, even if one shot is Richie Haven singing and the other shot is his foot. Mm. I mean, that's neat. So it was edited brilliantly. Hmm. And then, of course, that came uh, Gimme Shelter. And just a week ago at the Sundance Film Festival, I saw a little nine-minute documentary that was a fascinating documentary. It was called um, – I don't remember the numbers. Mm. So I'm going to say Row 73, Plot 14. And they're introducing a guy who runs a cemetery. And he's walking down the path and saying that he's worked there for 40 years. And then it turns out that we're going to visit the grave of the young man who was killed at Altamont. Mm. Young African-American. Yeah. They intercut with footage of Give Me Shelter. There he is in his um, green sport coat, as I recall. Mm-hmm. You can't tell by looking at that film exactly what happened. The Hells Angels later said that he was messing with their bikes. Uh, he had a gun and, yeah. yeah. There, was a, there were many different stories. Yeah. So we get to the grave and it's unmarked. And then the documentarian continues by saying that nobody really knows anything about him. There were no stories mm. afterwards about who he was. There were no interviews with his relatives or his parents or his siblings. He was at the Rolling Stones concert. He was killed. And that was it. And here he is on this Mm. this unmarked piece of land. Mm -hmm. And so that was really an interesting little film that somebody would think to make that film. Yeah, for sure. Well, I thought that the Woodstock and Gimme Shelter, those are the bookends. I mean, that's that's the end of the 60s, those two high points. And the fact that those two concerts only followed within six months. Mm-hmm. You know, the hippie ideal, it's all going to be peace, love, and flowers. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the, the, the fact that uh, sometimes people are really disgusting. And, mm-hmm. and you have, you have Jagger saying what went wrong. I mean, who's fighting what fall? 
Who's fighting and what for? Why are we fighting? Why are we fighting? We don't want to fight. Come on. Do we want? Who wants to fight? Who is it? That was Roger Ebert talking with us in 2006. We're going to return with more of our conversation with the late great critic in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And then we'll review the fourth album from New York trio, The Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and today we're remembering the legendary critic Roger Ebert. He was a friend and colleague, and of course his TV show with fellow Chicago Tribune critic Gene Siskel was a huge inspiration for this show. We've been playing our 2006 conversation with Roger where we asked him to ponder the role of music in his life and share his thoughts on rock docs and concert films. We pick up with The Last Waltz, Martin Scorsese's 1978 film about the band. Controversial title around these parts. Personally, I hate The Last Waltz. Well, you know, I know it's Scorsese. I love Scorsese. Yeah. But it just, you know, everything is shot so that the, the performers are iconic. And mm-hmm. we're, we're here to worship them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Robbie Robertson's every utterance, you know, is like, this man is genius. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Dylan and Neil Young. And, you know, and it's like, man, what a crock. And that was happening at the same time as punk. I think at the time that Scorsese made The Last Waltz, he was going through an extremely difficult personal period. 
Yeah, he and Robbie Robertson were just doing coke 24 hours okay, a day. Okay, you, you managed to put a uh, yeah. word to it. Yeah, well, they, They've both written about it. And I think <laughs> yeah, they'd, yeah. they'd both uh, broken up um, marriages. marriages, and they were living together and, and working 24-7 you know, on this gonna, thing, right? I wasn't even going to say coke, but since you brought it up, Scorsese told me that, he says, you know, in AA, they say you have to hit bottom. <laughs> so well, I was declared dead. In an emergency room, and that—that's bottom. <laughs> I choose to call that my bottom. Wow! Can you, you know, the that idea, idea, not that no. I'm not saying that yeah. he was in AA or not. I'm yeah. just saying that that was, you know. Cisco went to visit him during that period, and he was living in a soundproof projection room in the basement of his house, looking at movies. Hmm. Like Cisco never either didn't see any coke or never mentioned any coke in the story. It was just that. He had gone into a movie-watching period, but then Scorsese watches movies constantly anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, one rock movie we haven't mentioned is probably the most influential of all, and that's A Hard Day's Night. Right. Richard Lester, incredible. And there's a theme in, in that review. I, I read your review of that movie as well, and I'm, I'm starting to see a pattern here, Roger. The movies that you love – there's a joy that radiates from the performers. David Byrne and Stop Making Sense, mm-hmm. uh, the Woodstock movie, the Beatles movie, which you loved. And you compare, like, some of the, the Jarmish take on Neil Young to, like, watching a bunch of guys surviving a death march. Yeah. And the last <laughs> waltz, he said, these guys are dragging themselves on stage. They don't want to be here. Mm-hmm. They look like they're – they look like a band that's that's coming to an end. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be, like, that fundamental well, joy, joy is missing. joy of performance. I mean um – there is a quality that some uh, actors or some singers or some musicians bring to their work that really transcends any abstract thing you can say about how good they are. When A Hard Day's Night was made, it was new to the Beatles. Mm-hmm. I mean, when they're being chased by the girls through the train station, of course, it's a scene. It's not documentary. It was shot like a documentary, mm-hmm. but it's not. But it was still fairly new to them. When they crowd into that limousine and they're laughing as the girls are smiling through, it hadn't happened to them until the last – Six months. They, you know, they had been absolutely broke in some cellar in Liverpool or off in Germany somewhere, and now suddenly they were tickled to be stars. Yeah. You see them on the kinescopes of the Ed Sullivan show, and it's like they're grinning, like, "Look, my, I'm on Ed Sullivan." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there was a, a newness to it. Mm-hmm. A newness to it. And you can uh, see help. It. By the time they made help, it was. It was already over. They had moved on. I mean, it's amazing. Basically, MTV today would not exist without the kind of quick camera cuts and pacing that Mm -hmm. that, that this guy pioneered in 65. He made a short subject called The Running, Jumping, and Standing Still film starring Spike Mulligan and Peter Sellers. And that movie essentially gave him the style for A Hard Day's Night. He decided it's going to be black and white. It's going to be handheld camera. It's going to be shot like a documentary or a Mm -hmm. newsreel. And it's going to be based on the idea of reality. And when he shot that concert scene, that's shot in the BBC studios at Shepherd's Bush. Mm-hmm. And the Beatles were actually on the stage in the, in the audience, which all seems to be, you know, orgasmic teenage girls. <laughs> they were in that room. Mm-hmm. Although, of course, the setups were such that at times the Beatles weren't on the stage when they were shooting right, the audience. Right. And there's that young blonde girl who starts to cry. In the middle of that film, it's one of the most perfect moments in the history of the cinema. And uh, uh, she's just so happy to be there. And then you look at the Beatles. They're singing through their smiles.
There's another scene, the overhead shot of them running out into the field and just running around, (laughs) falling down. And that's kind of from the Running, Jumping, and Standing Still film. And it's just like, now we're going to show the Beatles running running around around in the grass and falling down (laughs) and having fun. And, you know, within about another year or two, they would have taken themselves too seriously to shoot that scene. I suppose you realize this is private property. Sorry we aren't your field, mister. You have two great rock and roll stories that I think illustrate what Greg said. Do you have rock and roll in your bones? Number one, you wrote what is one of the greatest rock movies of all time. It <laughs> honestly is on my list, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls with Russ Meyer. Mm-hmm. And I tell you, Roger, so when I was uh, a kid in college, there was this huge psychedelic revival in the New York scene. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to The Dive, which was the hub of that club on mm-hmm. 23rd Street, and they would show this movie before the Flesh Tones played or before the Vipers played or or this band that I, I was friends with called The Mod Fun. And everybody would stand there and, and shout the lines of dialogue out like the Rocky Power Picture Show. This is my house! And it freaks me out. <laughs> oh, no thanks, man. In a scene like this, you get a contact high. <laughs> this is my happening, and it freaks me out. You know, it's this trio of girls who are, are in a band, and they're crossing the country. Mm-hmm. It's got this wonderful day-glow, psychedelic insanity. I, I don't even know if you're aware. I mean, you kind of always shrug when this is brought up. But it is a sacred text among no, many I, rockers. No, I don't, I don't really shrug. Uh, I think it, uh, it holds up amazingly well. It came out in 1970. Mm-hmm. And it is probably seen more today than most other movies that were made in 1970. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, one it's of coming out this year finally best. on DVD. One of the problems is that 20th Century Fox has always been ashamed of it. Hmm. It was one of the top-grossing pictures they ever had, <laughs> especially <laughs> if you look at how much it cost, which was $900,000, which $300,000 went to Jacqueline Suzanne. So it didn't cost very much money, and it made a lot of money. But in the official history of Fox that the studio published, it is not mentioned. Hmm. And that you have there a rare collector's item of the VHS, which is yeah, probably uh, about 10 or 15 years old. Yeah, at least. I bought it when, when I was watching it in the Yeah, and 80s. it's been out of print for a long time. So it's coming out this year for the first time on DVD. All right. And yet, oddly enough, people do seem to know it by heart. Yeah. Well, but you said you didn't even see a rock concert until 70 uh, when you saw Dylan. And yet uh, this movie, obviously, you wrote before, what, 68, 69? Wrote in the summer of 69. Okay. Mm -hmm. Did you consider it a rock and roll movie? We were hired. Russ was hired to make a movie called Beyond the Valley of the Dallas because Fox owned the rights to that title. Hmm. And he called me up. I didn't written some reviews of his movies and we've met a couple of times and we got along fine he said you're the person to write this film we need a person of the younger generation why of course <laughs> you know was probably not the younger generation person he was thinking of but he didn't know yeah we went out there we screened the original film it's about three girls who go to hollywood girls young women yeah <laughs> um they try to break into the movies they have fame but they also uh fall prey to sex drugs the not, evils of hollywood I mean, evils of hollywood we looked at the movie. Neither one of us ever read the book. I said to Russ, well, let's, let's have three girls again. This time, let's make them an all-girl rock trio. And they go to the music world in Hollywood, and they fall prey to sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And then we put in characters who were based on real people who we didn't know. Mm. For example, Z-Man Barzell, he's based on Phil Spector. Mm-hmm. We never met Phil Spector. I knew nothing about him except maybe having read an article in Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. All of the 
stuff in the movie is is kind of like people say, well, was this inspired by this? Was this inspired by that? Did you go to a lot of wild parties in Hollywood? Did you do that? No. It was all just kind of basing it on things that we only imagined. Hmm. So we, you'd, never, you'd never take an acid? No, I've, I've never <laughs> taken acid to this day. No, no. One more artist who proves that you can, you can make psychedelic art without having to take psychedelic And as for and Russ Roger, Meyer, Russ Meyer yeah. was far, far from being an acid head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Give him a shot of, of Johnny Walker and he was happy. Johnny Walker. I, I'm yeah. doubly Russ shocked happy. because Roger just told us that he, uh, you spent some time in the hate at the height of the uh, – uh, uh, the drug year. Well, not like Gene. Gene Sisko was <laughs> in San Francisco the whole year of 1968. Mm-hmm. I was out there to visit some friends in the summer of 68 and uh, was on the campus of San Francisco State when uh, the National Guard came in, and I saw some of that at a cautious distance. Mm-hmm. I was not one of the guys with the handkerchief wrapped around my nose and, you know— Against the tear against gas. Against the tear gas. No, I was a journalist, mm-hmm. uh, which is to say a coward. You're listening to Sound Opinions and our conversation with Roger Ebert. This is the other great piece of rock and roll, Roger Ebert trivia. You wrote a screenplay for a Sex Pistols movie that was never made. That's right. Uh, what happened was um, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was playing every Saturday at midnight at the Electric Cinema on Portobello Road in London. It's the oldest cinema in the U.K. And every Saturday night, the Sex Pistols would go to see it. Had been going to see it <laughs> even before they were the Sex Pistols, you know. Yeah. And they were just John Lydon and so forth. Yeah. And Malcolm McLaren, their manager. And they thought it was a great movie. And they knew it by heart. So Russ called me up and he said, have you ever heard of the Sex Pistols? And I said, uh, they're a punk rock band from England. What else do you know? I said, that's how much I know. <laughs> I think they got in trouble on the BBC. He says, well, he says, I've got a call here from a guy named Malcolm McLaren. He says he's their manager. They like Beyond the Valley of the Dallas and they want us to write the Sex Pistols movie. And my guy in England, by which he meant his distributor, who you know probably knew less about rock and roll than, than Russ did, says they're really big. They're really big. So I flew out to L.A. We met with Malcolm McLaren, who turned up in his leather bondage pants. It had been designed <laughs> for him. By his by, wife, by Vivian his wife, Westwood. Yes. She had the, she had the, the shop called Sex on yes. Kings Road. Mm-hmm. And he had all these buckles and belts, you know, flopping on the floor behind him, ready to be bound at a moment's notice. <laughs> He took us on a crash course through the Sex Pistols. We listened to – they had one album out, uh, never mind the uh, Bollocks, I think. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. yeah. And we listened to that. Then we looked at uh, footage of them on the BBC and uh, them in concert and uh, anything that, that existed. We got mm-hmm. a big sheaf of newspaper articles. And then we were set loose to, loose to write the screenplay. I checked into the Sunset Marquee where I lived when I wrote Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. And I came up with this idea. Originally, the movie was, it was going to be called Anarchy in the U.K., based mm-hmm. on their song. 
But then we changed it to Who, Who Killed Bambi, which I thought was really a great title. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The only title better than that I ever wrote for Russ Meyer was uh, The Bra of God. <laughs> that was a good title. So we got in there and started writing. And at the time, there was a lot of publicity about Scientology. Hmm. And uh, they would monitor you uh, with something called the E-meter. And if you went through this whole process, you could become clear. And so I came up with this theory that the Sex Pistols wanted to unleash anarchy upon the U.K. by hitching everybody up to something that we did not call the Mm E-meter, like one of these arcade games where you sit in a chair and drive a race car, Mm. you know, and you see the track on the screen in front of you. And it envelops you. Yeah, and so basically you put people into this chair and they're driving along on the E-meter mobile, and it clears their mind and they become... Anarchists. It clears them. <laughs> it clears them of conventional politics. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. And so they were going to take over the society by starting in the amusement arcades. And McLaren gave us some input. Hmm. He said, "Why don't you put in a scene where uh, Sid Vicious is in bed with his mother, and they have sex, and then they shoot heroin?" <laughs> oh, and I said, "Well, uh, I don't. You think?" He says, "Oh, yeah, that would be good. We got to." You know. Yeah, yeah. So we finished the screenplay, and Russ and I get on a plane to go to London for script conferences. And we meet with Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious separately. So Sid is given his pages to read. And you, you couldn't imagine. He can't read. <laughs> well, I, I guess he could read. I mean, he seemed nice enough at that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, compared to Sid and Nancy, certainly. Yeah. Meyer and I are sitting in the room looking at him, fascinated, as he reads this scene about himself being in bed, having sex with his mother, and then they shoot heroin. <laughs> and he reads it carefully. He looks up and he says... I don't think my mom will go for the part about the drugs. <laughs> All the rest of it, yeah. <laughs> and Marianne Faithful was signed, by the way, to play Mrs. Vicious. Wow. Oh. That would have been inspired. Then we go out to dinner one night with Johnny Rotten. And he started having a little kind of an attitude, you know, where he would intimidate. He was going to intimidate everyone. And yeah. Russ said, Listen, you little twerp. We fought the Battle of Britain for you. And if you don't shut up and sit down, I'm leaving out some four-letter words, I'm going to fight it all over again right on your head. That's great. And Johnny sat down, and he was quiet. And what he didn't realize— Good little Irish Catholic schoolboy well, that he was yeah, at that's heart. that's the whole point. You see, he was Irish, so mm-hmm. the Battle of Britain had nothing to do with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also, America did not fight the Battle of Britain for him. Britain yeah, fought Britain the Battle of Britain for yeah. itself. So there was some. So anyway, then he starts. Then he just relaxes and he starts to complain that Malcolm McLaren had them all on a budget of five pounds a week. Yeah. That's all the money they got, and he was living in a squat yeah. over by Portobello Road. And so Russ took him home, Russ and I, in the rented car that Russ had, and we stopped at an all-night store. I remember Russ went in, and and bought him. Six cans of pork and beans and two six packs of Guinness to keep him going. Yeah, and yeah. that. But then the movie started shooting, and uh, 24 hours later, Malcolm McLaren went broke because Warner Brothers did not sign the deal they were going to sign mm. with the Pistols after their American tour fell through. Right. They shot one day of the movie that had no Sex Pistols in it. It mm-hmm. was all about the the deer, mm. Bambi. Never mind. <laughs> I won't even get into that subplot. And uh, then they pulled the plug. Wow. And uh, there was no money, and the movie failed, and yeah. it wasn't made, and that was the end of it. Yeah, the band yeah. basically fell apart on that tour. Yeah, yeah. it was the, the end of the band and then the end of the movie, which is tragic, given have those you, tales. Have you ever published <laughs> the screenplay, Roger? It actually exists. I don't know that I have the right to publish it. I don't know who owns it. I have no idea who owns mm. it. Oh, well, you I wrote it. I ran into it. John Lydon at, the, at Sundance a couple of years ago when they had that documentary about the Pistols mm-hmm. that was made by Julian Temple. 
And uh, yeah, Filth and the Fury, mm-hmm. really good movie. Well, and what did Lydon say to you when you saw him? We didn't actually have. Uh, you're going to be disappointed. He didn't have anything very interesting. Oh, to say okay. To but I, you know, I said something like, um, uh, "Who killed Bambi?" And he just turned around because not very many people really know that title. And I said, uh, "I'm Roger Ebert. I wrote that screenplay. I met you with Russ Meyer in London." Hmm. He says, "Oh my God!" He says, "Do you remember that dinner we had?" And I said, "Yeah." And he says. Um, that guy was really weird. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, well, you know, that's interesting. <laughs> oh, man. That's what I said, yeah, I remember when he bought you the beer and the pork and beans. And he said, he did? And I said, yeah. And he says, well, he says, I'm sure I was glad to have it. <laughs> then he used an obscenity. That obscenity, Malcolm McLaren. About McLaren, yeah, yeah, yeah. paid us obscenity, obscenity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> managers, rock and roll managers. We could literally do this all day, but it's been Yeah, you know, I've never had half an hour pass more quickly. (laughs) Yeah, well, I said a half hour. (laughs) (laughs) Oops. Oops. No, thanks, Roger. That was great. This was a lot of fun. You guys are really smart and really fun to talk to. Thank you. Thanks, Roger. Mm -hmm. Good sense, ill sense, crippling mankind. Dead kings, many things I can define. Occasions, buzz, wagons, brother, your mind. In the sense of compliments, we color of time. For more on Roger Ebert, including my written tribute, visit the footnotes at soundopinions.org. And we want to hear your memories of the critic, TV personality, and raconteur. Call 888-859-1800. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs are back with Mosquito. And I'll add a song I can't live without to the Desert Island Jukebox. By the cockeyed world in two Throwing up by the one side is the least you can do Beat makes and politics Nothing is new A yardstick for lunatics One point of view Who cares what games we choose Little to win But nothing to lose Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim Dirigatis, and that's Mosquito, the title track from the new Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs album, their fourth studio album, first since 2009. Trio out of New York City. Origins go back to Ohio, though, where uh, singer Karen O and drummer Brian Chase first met. She later moved to New York, where she met guitarist Nick Zinner. 
and they started performing together in a duo. Later on, Chase was invited into the band, and the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs were born. Self-titled debut EP in 2001 put him right in that pocket of that new wave revival, garage rock coming back in force in New York City, followed up in 2003 with a debut album on Interscope Records that really established their reputation. A lot of garagey, trashy-type rock songs on that record, but a key song, Maps, on that album that I think was one of the most significant songs of the last decade. 2006, they came back with Show Your Bones. 2009, it's Blitz, more of a dance rock element in that record, and now finally with their fourth album, Mosquito. One of the biggest bands on the planet's got to be said. They headline festivals all around the world. A lot of anticipation for this release. We're going to review it in a second, but here's a track from it first. It's called Sacrilege from the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs on Sound Opinions. was sacrilege from the new Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's album, Mosquito. Greg, before I say another word, i got to say this is one of the most disgusting album covers I've ever seen, all right? Uh, boy, is it disturbing, the baby and the mosquito. Don't, don't even look at it if you can avoid it. But we don't review album art, we review music. I am really digging Mosquito. It's really interesting to go back to 2000 and 2001 mm. when the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs were introducing themselves to the world. They were neck and neck with the Strokes. Everybody's excited about the Strokes and the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, the new sound of rock resurgent coming from New York. Well, we were really harsh. 
recently on Come Down Machine, the latest from The Strokes. The Strokes have seemed to progress absolutely nowhere from that wonderful debut album. All of their attempts to incorporate other elements of sounds into their music have fallen flat. They've been forced. They've been phony and contrived. The Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, in contrast, have been growing organically over four albums. 2009, It Splits, you noted the influence of dance music coming on strong. That continues on Mosquito, but then you have everything and the kitchen sink. You've got gospel choirs sounding really organic in the midst of the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs garage and dance grooves. You've got a track Buried Alive, a fascinating track uh, done with Dr. Octagon, the really avant-garde hip-hop producer. I like the way the sound is growing. I have three or four songs I just can't get enough of. I like the album as a whole. So for me, it's an enthusiastic buy it for Mosquito. You're right, Jim. They've evolved. There's no doubt about it. And in a good way. I think the typecast trashy garage band, how much life does this band really have in it after the first couple of records? Clearly, they have a long life ahead of them. They continue to make these arty pop records. This is the best of the bunch, I think. Uh, So diverse and so unexpected in many ways as well. Nick Zinner, I think, has evolved tremendously. I think he was viewed as one of the new guitar heroes when he first came up. Now he's not playing a lot of guitar at all. It's all these different keyboards and effects that he's using to create these amazing atmospheres on these songs. Karen O has grown so much as a singer. I think Maps was viewed as an anomaly when it came out uh, more than 10 years ago. Now it's really kind of central. That emotional presence that she brought to that song is really here in a much greater degree. The last three songs, I think, on the record really do it for me. This sort of emotional resonance, the passion that is there in her singing, in a sort of a subdued vein. But, you know, she's newlywed, she's talking about this new love in her life, but in a way that's making cool pop music as well. They're showing all facets of their personality now, and it doesn't seem like there's any stop to it. The growth continues, they keep getting better as they go along. This is a buy it album all the way. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Jim, you're hanging out in the coconut tree. I hope you don't fall, break your head like Keith Richards did. But you've got the uh, Desert Island jukebox up there with you. Going to pop a quarter in it. What are you going to play for us today? Greg, we had another death that should be remarked upon this week. Andy Johns is one of the three famous Johns in recording history, one of the three British giants behind the mixing board. He was the younger brother of Glyn Johns and the uncle of Ethan Johns. And what a career this gentleman had. He died recently at the age of 61. Started out on his very first session as the tape operator when Jimi Hendrix and the Experience were recording Axis Bold as Love. Went on to begin his own career with the English bands like Blodwin Pig and Humble Pie and Free. And then what a run. Starts working with the Rolling Stones as a recording engineer. The albums he worked on include Sticky Fingers, Exile on Main Street, Goat's Head Soup, and It's Only Rock and Roll. Amazing, Mm. right? And then he works with Led Zeppelin. Everything they did from Led Zeppelin 2 through Physical Graffiti. 
Now, granted, there were some downsides in his career as well. He has titles by Van Halen, Ozzy Osbourne, Cinderella, and Eddie Money. But to pay homage to Andy Johns, the record I want to play is by television, their incredible debut album, Marquee Moon. We've talked about it before on this show, uh, not long ago in the punk retrospective we did. But what an album. Many rock critics consider it one of their top five albums of all time. I think both you and I would put it certainly in our top 10 or 20. A startling debut album that sounds like nothing else in rock history. It didn't start that way. Our good friend Ira Robbins of Trouser Press, the journalist of the New Wave era in New York, said that Johns initially set up all the drum sounds at night before television began to record a note. And what he did was make them sound like John Bonham. Well, Tom Verlaine of television walked in and said, no, no, wait a minute. Mm. This is great for an arena. We want small dry, compact, in a box. And so Johns moved a few mics, twiddled a few knobs, and began to get the sound, really, I've always thought of a band in its rehearsal room. Mm. The intimacy of Marquee Moon is an extraordinary sound, and it fit the band perfectly. What he said to them is, oh, it must be a Velvets thing. Okay, I got <laughs> it. It's New York. <laughs> you yeah. know? And that's what he got. I'm going to play See No Evil, the opening track from that incredible album. The whole album is brilliant. But, you know, there's this thing. Three or four times in the last year I've been in a bar or a club in Chicago and I swear every jukebox in Chicago at a place worth drinking at <laughs> has See No Evil and when See No Evil comes on the jukebox A, that sound grips you you know, the sound of those guitars but also the groove it's got that and every head in the bar consciously or not begins to do that right? It's a wonderful moment I know you've seen it too Television See No Evil on Sound Opinions but I
television, see no evil in tribute to Andy Johns, the engineer producer of that record, dead at the age of 61. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we've got an in-studio visit from a real guitar virtuoso, Kurt Vile. As always, Greg, we have some thanks to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by our ace team of Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, and Annie Minoff. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, is Tori Southside Malatia. This is his happening, and it freaks him out. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey, this is Ian calling from Vienna, Austria. I just listened to the uh, Grand Slams podcast. I appreciated all your choices. I'm disappointed to not hear any heavy metal at all. And I think it could be argued that Metallica's run in the 80s, is as horrible as they got after that, was pretty brilliant. The first album, Kill Em All, through Injustice for All, and including the, the EP, Garage Days We Revisited. Every single one of those albums is, is pretty brilliant. And by the end of the 80s, they were certainly looked at it as a band that, that could do no wrong. And then proceeded to do nothing but wrong thereafter, in my opinion. Thanks. Bye. Hi there, guys. This is Aaron calling from Oklahoma City, and I have a grand slam for you. That would be The Roots, starting with Phrenology in 2002 and ending up with Rising Down in 2008. Uh, Phrenology is probably the best album The Roots has ever done. Thank you very much. Hi, my name is Mabel, and I'm calling from Chicago, Illinois. Greg and Jim, uh, I just finished listening to the Grand Slam episode, and the one that I kept thinking about and didn't come up was Super Chunk. I feel like Super Chunk is one of like the most underrated American bands of the 90s, if not of all time. And their Grand Slam, for me, begins with the brilliant sophomore record, No Pocky for Kitty. And, uh, and then it continues on with the next three studio records after that. On the Mouth, Foolish, and Here's Where the Strings Come In. I mean, those are four of my favorite records of all time. So um, keep up the good work, and I love the show. Hey guys, it's Steve from Indy. I loved your Grand Slam show, and it made me think, has anyone ever done back-to-back Grand Slams, eight in a row? Turns out, in the major leagues, it's happened 13 times, two Grand Slams by one player in the same game. 
the closest I could get was seven for sure great albums between 1970 and 1980. Steely Dan, Can't Buy a Thrill, Countdown to Ecstasy, Pretzel Logic, Katie Lies, The Royal Scam, Asia, and number seven, Gaucho. And here's the pitch. It connects. It's going to the wall. Going who against nature? Oh, so close. Well, we used to play when we were three. How about a kiss for your cousin to pray? How about a kiss for your cousin to pray? Hey, fellas. This is Matt calling from San Francisco. And I've never called in a show like this before, but when I heard you guys reviewing the South by Southwest week, and there was a comment made by, I think it was Jim, saying that the next band you compared somehow to Nirvana, and it was Savages. I'm going out on a limb. I have been accused sometimes of hyperbole. I'm going out on this limb with a chainsaw. I'm going to say this right now. I have not seen a more galvanizing or gripping rock and roll front person since Kurt Cobain more than two decades ago. After I got done throwing up in my mouth, I had to look at the date to see if it was April Fool's. In no way can that be compared, in any way, to a Nirvana album. Thanks, guys. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.